So on Thursday, you probably ate too much. On Friday, you probably shopped too much. On Saturday, you probably watched too much TV and ate more again. And I kid you not, the subject of today's sermon is forgiveness. And I didn't plan it that way. It just hit me as I was talking to a couple here this morning. We were talking about, you know, the, this week in church. And all of a sudden it hit me that that's probably been our pattern over the last three days. And here we are in our series out of Romans talking about I am forgiven. So if that's you, it's a perfect day for you to be in church. You're going to be glad you came. And I'm glad you came. Thir the Sunday after Thanksgiving is always a little bit of a lower Sunday. I call it Remnant Sunday. You know, in the Old Testament, only a remnant will be saved. You guys are the kind of the, the diehards of our church. Nothing's going to keep you from coming to church. Not eating too much, not shopping too much, or not too much TV. So here you are, ready to repent. So let's pray, and uh, let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, thank you for Gerald and for the worship we've had, and the fact that we can lift up our voices to you, fellowship with one another, uh, do that wonderful liturgy from the Psalms, and be reminded of, of your forgiveness and love. And I pray, God, as we turn to your word now, that you might give us wisdom and understanding. Uh, Lord, speak to our hearts, touch our minds, that we might understand more about you and the amazing grace that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray this in his name. Amen. So th there's a two-word phrase that all of you like, you relate to, you've heard it before, and it makes you feel good. It's the phrase job security, job security. If you own your own business, forget it. You'll never know what job security is like, but it just part of goes with owning a small business. But for other professions, job security really is a powerful thing. I mean, think about the world that you live in. Teachers get tenured. Sports players get lucrative contracts. CEOs and other execs strike deals that guarantee them employment. Unions fight for the protection of their people so that they might have job security. You and I live in, in an amazing economy, as difficult as it has been as of late, in which people have fought for this thing called job security, and in a fast-paced, always-changing, dog-eat-dog world, job security is music to most people's ears. We just like the phrase, or the sound of the phrase. It brings comfort to the mind and heart. And the reason is, is because it communicates something that we can rely on. It gives us some security and stability in the midst of an ever-changing and not always knowing what's going to happen world. And so when we hear or experience job security, we rest secure. And the reason that I bring that up is because though many of us are probably never going to have job security, it is getting much more rare as things go along, the scriptures come along, and without telling you you have job security, what they do tell you is that for those of us who have embraced God through his son, Jesus Christ, the Bible says we now have spiritual security. And that's what I want you to equate today, how job security has made you feel in the past to the spiritual security that I want to talk to you about that we have in Christ. Because what the Bible tells us, and this many Christians tend to miss, is that there is something now about being a Christian, some things that are now true about you, that the Bible says about you, ways that God sees you, power and potential that he's putting in you, in which he says, it's now a whole different game for your life. I'm front and center in your life, I'm your Lord and Savior, I'm your Father, I'm your King, 
And there's many things that are now true about you as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, and these are the things that we're exploring in this series we're in. We've called this series, I Am. You can see it on the screen there at the bottom. I Am, fill in the blank. And we're discovering some key things that God's Word, particularly the book of Romans, tells us that are now true about us since we've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Things that are true no matter what you might be experiencing, thinking, feeling, they're true de facto because you are in Christ. And so far over the last few weeks, we have seen that in Christ you are now a child of God, that you are called his kid and you can call him dad. You're adopted and nothing can change this. You're now his child, the Bible says. And then over the last two weeks, we've further seen that you have been chosen by his grace. You're a child who's been chosen by God, called into his kingdom, not based on anything that you have done, mind you, but because of his own purpose and grace. So in Christ, you are a child of the Father, and in Christ, you have been chosen by God. And today, as we move on in our look at what the New Testament book of Romans tells us about this spiritual security we have in Christ, we come to the third thing that is now true about you simply by being in Christ, and that is you are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, I know how some of you think, and I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, well, I know that I'm forgiven, Jamie. Like, duh, it's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to be forgiven by God. Tell me something I don't already know. All right? Here's what I don't think most of us get yet. And this is my main point this morning. And that is that most of us know that in Christ we are now forgiven, but many of us do not know how much we are forgiven. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. It's an issue of extent. It's an issue of how much you have really let it sink in or how much you've really experienced this great forgiveness that God has given you. I mean, we know that we're forgiven. You'd have to be totally dense to, realize, to not realize that this is core to the Christian truth claim. But when push comes to shove, when rubber meets the road, in our spiritual walk with God through Christ, I find that most Christians don't really know how much they are forgiven and how much of a difference it can and should make in both our inner and outer daily lives. So if you brought a Bible with you today, and I hope you did, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 4 through 8. If you didn't bring Bibles on the back of your outline, also, as always, we'll put it up here on the screen. But Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. And when you get there to this passage, the first thing you're going to find in this powerful little soundbite out of Romans is that it begins by reminding us of how we came into a relationship with God and as a result received his forgiveness in the first place. It's going to remind us of our salvation and how our salvation works. So look at how it begins in verses 4 through 5 of Romans chapter 4. It says, Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we learned this at the end of our last series, the first installment of I Am back in the fall. And that is that for one to come into a right relationship with God, for one to experience salvation, it is totally by faith in Christ, 
apart from works. It's not to the person who works, as the scriptures say here, but to the one who believes. And by faith and faith alone, we receive Christ's righteousness as our own so that we don't have to measure up, because we can't anyways, based on our own merits. And so a simple way to remember this, a simple way to remember what it means to be saved, what it means to become a Christian, is this little phrase, faith alone in Christ alone. If you can remember that, you can remember the gospel. Faith alone in Christ alone is what makes you a Christian. So as we all know around here, you become a Christian not by being born into a Christian family or by attending a Christian church in some nice southwestern desert town, or even by living as good as you can. No, you become a Christian only by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's what it means to become a Christian. And at this point, notice that verse 5 there says that you are now justified. Your faith is counted as righteousness. In other words, you're forgiven. The moment you become a Christian, the Bible says you are legally justified before God. He sees you as righteous and good. He has forgiven you of all your sins. And this is what verses 4 and 5 of Romans 4 is reminding us of, of how we become Christians by believing in Christ to the point of being justified or forgiven when we do so. Now, dial into this. It's interesting what the rest of this passage goes on to say now that it has reminded us of this. So look at verses 6 through 8 of what it now says next. Very interesting. It says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then it quotes the Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So don't miss what is happening here, folks. After outlining real quickly in verses 4 and 5, this idea of faith alone in Christ alone as the basis of entering into a vital relationship with God, it then says in verses 6 through 8 here that we have a blessing. Did you catch that? Three times it uses this word blessing. A blessing that is now ours simply by being in Christ. In other words, now that you've come to Christ, you've been blessed by something. And quoting Psalm 32 from the Old Testament, it tells us what this is. You've been blessed with forgiveness from Almighty God. And then it uses three word pictures, three very graphic depictions of what this forgiveness is like and has done. Did you catch them? Lawless deeds are forgiven, sins are covered, and sin the Lord will not count against us. Lawless deeds, sins covered, and the sin the Lord will not count against us. Three word pictures. And the question that I want you to wrestle with as you follow the flow and logic of the scriptures here, because this is a good thing to wrestle with, is why does the writer of Romans do this? I mean, he just told us that we are justified, forgiven, because of our faith in verses 4 and 5 there. So why go into graphic detail? Quoting the Old Testament, which he's already kind of stated is already true, why the graphic detail about forgiveness? What's his point in doing this? And I would submit to you, it's my main point this morning, and that is it's because most of us know verses 4 and 5 that we're forgiven by being in Christ. But many of us do not know verses 6 through 8, which is how much we have been forgiven. And God wants to bring it home to our souls 
in any way and in all ways that he can. Three word pictures, three powerful images that God wants us to have and always remember that remind us of the extent of our forgiveness in Christ. And so let's look at each one of these individually, then we'll add it all up as a whole. So notice with me uh, more particularly the first one there in verse 7. It says that your lawless deeds are forgiven. And so here is the picture, believe it or not, that God wants you to have, and that is that your sins are gone they have left you. That's what God's forgiveness does. He removes them from you. And now, folks, listen very closely to this right now because this is rich biblical stuff. Uh, contained in this little formula here is a powerful picture uh, of what God wants us to have in, in our lives. When he says that your lawless deeds are forgiven, that word forgiven, that single word forgiven, in the original Greek language of the Bible carries with it a very everyday but powerful image. This word, it's the Greek word aphemi, is actually very common in the New Testament. It's used about 150 times in the New Testament. And yet what's most interesting is that in the majority of contexts that this word is used in the New Testament, it's not translated forgiven like it is here in Romans 4. No, it's translated much more simply to mean, now don't miss this, to leave or go away. It was a very common word back in the Bible's day that was used to denote someone leaving or going away from something or someone. It was simply a word that denoted distance between two things or two people. So, for instance, as I was studying this word a few years back, I found that in Matthew 4, verse 11, when Jesus is being tempted in the desert, it says, and the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. When it says the devil left him, same word forgiveness here in Romans 4. Left him. Then in Matthew 4.20, Jesus calls his first disciples. And it says, and immediately they left their nets. Same word used for forgiveness here in Romans 4. And then in Matthew 8, verse 15, Jesus is healing a woman. And it says he touched her hand and the fever left her. Same word forgiveness in Romans 4. And then in Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching, and it says that he left the multitudes and went into the house. You get the idea. A very common word with very common usages that simply mean to leave something, to put distance between that which you are leaving and that which you're trying to distance yourself from. And yet when we get to Romans chapter 4, this exact same Greek word, the Greek word aphemi, is here translated to forgive. And so don't miss what the original first century readers would have picked up on right away, and that is the image here of our sins being forgiven is an image of them leaving us, of being gone. A huge distance is now between them and you as far as God is concerned. Your lawless deeds have been forgiven, and the picture, as far as God is concerned, is that they've left you. They're gone. They're distant from you. That's how much he has forgiven you. Now, let me ask you, and I know this is a pretty lead-in question because just about everybody going to raise your hand to this one, but how many of you here own a cell phone in your life right now? Raise your hand. Man, like, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been like the odd dork or geek that would have owned a cell phone, but now they're very, very commonplace. We have five of them in our family, because my wife and me and 
three kids in college, and that's how we kind of keep in touch. And I don't know about you, but in the early days when we all had cell phones, there was that old Verizon commercial that many of you remember where that dork was walking around and he'd say, can you hear me now? Do you guys remember that one? Can you hear me now? And it was Verizon's way of saying what great coverage they have because the guy would be like in Zimbabwe or Alaska or down in Puerto Rico and he'd be saying, you know, do you hear me now? Can you hear me now? And they'd always say yes. And the reason that that commercial bothered me is that as much as I might like Verizon, it's just not always true. I can remember in the early days, my brother's Sprint phone could never get reception when he'd visit me in Cleveland, never. When I moved here five years ago, I had an AT&T phone that used to cut out every day on the 101 as I passed by the Rain Tree Corporate Center going to my home. In fact, I'd say to somebody on the phone when I was talking to him, I'd say, I'm about to cut out, I'll call you right back. Because like clockwork, it would cut out. Even my beloved Verizon phone now, there are times when it just goes out. It happens to all of us for no reason. And so I don't care if you have AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, or one of the cheapies. It doesn't matter. At some point, you and I have heard that old commercial and made fun of it. Can you hear me now? No, I can't. You're breaking up. The signal's not getting through. And whether it's because we're not close enough to a tower or there are mountains that are blocking it, for whatever reason, the signal isn't getting through. But believe it or not, that's an amazing thing to latch on to when it comes to what we're talking about here this morning. Because here's my point. When, when you and I sin, and we do, and our sin says to God, can you hear me now? Like with many of our cell phones, it doesn't get through. The message is all broken up. There is now too much distance between your sin and God so that when your sin says to God, can you hear me now? He says, I can't hear you. Like a lost cell phone signal, it doesn't even get through to God. The forgiveness that is yours in Christ has created such a distance between you and your sin, that the connection, as far as God is concerned, is gone. And again, I know how some of you think. You think, well, okay, Jimmy, cute little Verizon illustration, but is this really biblical? It is. Look at one of the Old Testament's illustrations when it comes to this. Look at Psalm 103, verse 12. I think I got this on the screen. I do. It says this, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Do you know in the Semitic mind how far the east is from the west? It was an infinite line. Send a line east, send a line west, and they would never, ever meet. It's an issue of extent. It's an issue of distance. And that's how much he has forgiven you. And so here's the deal before we move on to the next word picture. The next time you use your cell phone... <laughs> And the next time you lose the person on the other end, don't get frustrated. I want you to think of Romans 4. And I want you to think about how your sin is also lost, too distant from the ears and sight of God, and then thank him for his forgiveness of you. Because that's how much he's forgiven you in Christ. It's the, it's the purpose and beauty of his grace. Now, second word picture that Romans 4 gives us, and this is, one is found in the latter half of verse 7 and is equally as powerful is that your sins are now covered and the word picture here is a word picture of concealed 
or hidden. And this is interesting, concealed or hidden. Now again, this is a very, very revealing word that the Bible uses, that word covered there in verse 7. And unlike the last word that we looked at, this one means just what it says. There's nothing cryptic here. There's no dual meaning. Even in the original language, if you were to look up this word, it's the Greek word kasa, it literally means to cover, to hide, to conceal something. And yet what is most fascinating about this word is that in its multiple appearances in the Old and New Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and then the Greek New Testament, it again appears about 150 times. It's used in some very high-octane settings to communicate some very highly charged movements of Almighty God. And so you'll see here in just a second, in Genesis 7, this word kasa is used when the flood comes on the earth. And it says that the high mountains everywhere and the heavens were covered by the water. So again, that, that word kasa, the water covering all of the earth. And then in Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 8, when the plagues are going on and the frogs came, that was one of the plagues, and, and covered all of the land of Egypt, same word here. And then Exodus 14, when the famous uh, parting of the Red Sea and the, and the Israelites get through, but the Egyptians who are following after them and the waters came, and say it with me, they covered all of the Egyptians. And then in Exodus 40, it says the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So picture the cloud covering the tent of the meeting. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful word here. This word covered. And over and over again, the scriptures use this word, this word simply denoting covering for some powerful spiritual activities. And so then when you get to Romans 4 here, again, quoting Psalm 32, and it says that God has covered our sin, covered our sin like water over mountains, covered our sin like frogs over the land, covered our sin like water over the Egyptians, covered our sin like the cloud over the tent of the meeting. It's not messing around. It's saying that your sins have literally been smothered, obliterated, covered by God due to his forgiveness. That's the picture here. Now, before we move on to the third word picture, however, I want to show you something else and unique about this idea of being covered that I found in my study of Romans over the years. Now dial into this. As I said earlier, almost every instance of the word covered in the Bible either refers to physical things that are covered like mountains by water, land by frogs, or clouds on the tabernacle, or our sin being covered by God. That's the majority of the usage of this word kasa. But in the course of pouring over some 200 passages that talk about covering, I did find one that isn't used in this way at all. And it's tucked away in the Old Testament book of Job, Job chapter 31, verse 33. And the implication here is profound in how you and I use this word covered compared to how God uses this word covered. So in the midst of defending himself to others and even God, listen to what Job says in Job 31, verse 33. He says, I have covered, the word kasa, I have covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my heart. I have covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my sin in my heart. Do, do, do you see what's happening here, folks? 
Unlike Romans 4, verse 7, the passage right above that, where it says that God covers our sin when we are in Christ, it's saying here that in Job 31, we humans do the opposite. What we do is that ever since Adam, we cover our sin as well, but we cover it in order to hide it. We cover it in order to conceal it. We cover it out of our shame and guilt so that others don't see it and God, we hope, doesn't recognize it. So don't miss this. You got the same word, the word cover, only here used to refer to us human beings covering our sin in order to hide it or escape it, whereas God uses the same word in a very different way. He says, I cover it so that it won't be there at all anymore. I cover it to destroy it, to forgive it, to kill it. And so the overall impression I get from this word picture in the scriptures here is that when you and I sin and experience guilt and shame, we cover it as best we can so that we can just avoid it and others don't see it. Can you relate to that at all? I can. But then along comes God and Christ, and he says, come to me uncover your sin before me, admit it, confess it, get it out, and I in return will cover it again myself, but when I cover it, it is truly forgiven. It is truly concealed. It is truly dealt with. That's what God's forgiveness does. It covers it. And so if you're following this at all, maybe this will help. Let me ask you, what happens to things when they are covered for a very, very long time in this world? like indefinitely or forever. What happens when you and I cover things? When you think about it, covering something in today's world will do one of two things to it, won't it? It will either preserve what you are covering. So if you cover a fine car or nice furniture or certain foods in the refrigerator, covering can act as a preservative. Or, as you and I have also experienced, covering can kill something, right? So if you cover your grass with a tarp, it's going to kill it. If you smother a breathing animal with a cloth, it's a goner. If you cover nice hardwood floors with water, it's probably going to ruin them. And so you and I have learned over the years that covering something can either preserve or destroy. It can either maintain or kill. We all know this. And here's the point, I think, from this biblical look. And that is that I find that when we as human beings cover our sin as Adam did, all we do is preserve it. When you and I cover our sin the way Adam does in order to hide it from God and not deal with it and keep it tucked away in our lives, we think we're doing good because nobody else sees it. But all we're doing is preserving it in our soul. You're just putting a a nice tarp over fine furniture and someday it's going to be taken off. And yet when we come to God through Jesus Christ and he covers our sin with his forgiveness and grace, he destroys it. His forgiveness deals with it once and for all. So you and I cover in order to hide and preserve. God covers in order to deal with it effectively. And so here's the deal. Some of you have sins here today, and I know you don't want to talk about it, but it is church, mind you. Some of you have sins here today that are either long-standing ones that have been with you for a very long time, maybe a small one that you keep doing over and over again, maybe a huge one that you just can't seem to, to lick, and you've kept them covered for months, probably even years. And like Adam, you've covered them well, 
And you know deep down that all you're really doing is preserving it. You're keeping it alive and well in your soul. And here's what you need to know. Maybe it's the only thing that you need to hear today. And that is that all it takes is you finally getting honest before God, confessing your sin to Him, and realizing in a moment of life-altering faith that He has totally and 100% forgiven you. And He has covered your sin in a way that you never could. And He did it through Christ's death on a cross for your sins. That when Jesus went to the cross, He went as a covering for you so that your sin would not just be gone and left as in the first word picture, but it's covered. Are you starting to see the extent of forgiveness? The average Christian today certainly knows that he or she is forgiven, but I'm not sure they know how much. And these word pictures are helping us to see the extent, the importance, the potency of God's forgiveness in our lives. He's forgiven you that much. Now, as if these two word pictures were not enough, there's a third word picture that Romans 4 gives us. And as far as profoundly biblical word pictures go, I believe the author has saved the best for last. And so notice this word picture, and that is that our sin is not taken into account, and the picture contained here is that it has been reasoned away, or for you accountant people, calculated to zero. That's the clear word picture here. And now once again, contained in this little phrase in Romans 4, 8, not counted his sin against him, is a powerful picture of how God deals with our sin. This little word here that we translate in the phrase not count is used some 40 times in the New Testament. And this single Greek word actually literally means to count or calculate or to reason something away. It was both an accounting term as well as a, a philosophical term back in Jesus' day. It was a word commonly used in both business settings to calculate a number or philosophy settings to reason something to conclusion. And so being a very technical and precise term, I want you to look up here on the screen and listen to what the New International Dictionary on New Testament theology says about this word. This is very, very revealing for you and I talking about God's forgiveness. It says the concept implies an activity of reason which, starting with ascertainable facts, draws a conclusion, especially a mathematical one or one pertaining to business, where calculations are essential. Plato also uses it for thought unaffected by emotions, reason, which seeks to grasp the objective facts and apply them. So there it is. That's what this word is all about in its original context. It's a business term or a philosophy term, calculating something to zero or reasoning something away. And so given this understanding of this term, you might now be able to see how Romans chapter 4, verse 8 is using it. What it's saying is that because of Christ's work on the cross and your subsequent faith and trust in him, God has now done the math. He's done the math, he's reasoned within himself, and he has come to the conclusion that your sin is no longer part of the equation. He's not counting it against you. Your sin, which deserves separation and death, plus Christ's death for you, now equals zero. 
And that's what you need to see. It's really faulty math as far as how you and I would function. If you and I were to take our sin and say, what does that deserve in somebody's life? How do we apply it to other people around us? Well, unless we're feeling really benevolent, we usually say that you owe me. But God doesn't see it that way. When he sees all of your sin, which deserves separation and death, and he applies Christ's death, he says, I'm not counting it against you. I've forgiven you that much. The balance sheet is even. The whole debt is canceled out. And so this is why 2 Corinthians 5.19 says it this way. It says that it, that is, in Christ God, he was in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting, there's that same word again, reasoning them away, calculating them to zero. And so let's just get down to brass tacks. On a very practical level then, what this means is that the next time you sin, which will probably be today, God in heaven adds it to your balance sheet. It now becomes a negative one, or maybe for you a negative million if you're at all human. And then he looks at Christ. And what Christ has done for you, and instead of showing a minus one or a minus million, what shows up is a zero. It's not counted against you at all. And it doesn't matter, as I said earlier, if it's a new sin or whether it's one of those same nasty old ones that you've been trying to get over for years. Jesus said, I forgive seven times 70, and he calculates it every time the same to zero. Three word pictures. Three powerful images having to do with our sin and God's forgiveness. They have gone and left, distance so great that God can't hear your sin anymore. They've been covered and concealed, and in covering your sin, he destroys them. And he's reasoned away and not taken them into account, all to show you how much you're forgiven in Christ. Please see, it's an issue of extent that the Scriptures want us to see here today when it comes to forgiveness. Now, one last thought before we go to our elder fund offering today. And to convey this last thought, which is the most important thought I'm going to share with you today, I want to tell you a brief and true story. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, Jackson there was a guy by the name of George Wilson, a postal clerk, who robbed a federal payroll from a train. In the process, he killed a guard. And as you can imagine, the courts convicted him and he was sentenced back then to death by hanging. And yet because the wave of a public opinion at that time was against capital punishment, a move was starting to be uh, initiated by the people to secure a presidential pardon for Wilson. It was his first and only offense. And in a bold move, Andrew Jackson, again the president, intervened and he granted George Wilson a pardon. And to the utter astonishment of everyone, Wilson refused it. Now, let me read for you uh, from an article out of Leadership Magazine uh, the rest of this story. It says, since it is, this had never happened before, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse a presidential pardon. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision. He said, a pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. And George Wilson, as a punishment for his crime, was hanged. 
Why? Because he refused the pardon. The pardon was given for him. It was given by the President of the United States. It was an amazing move of grace. And for whatever reason that nobody will ever know, except Wilson himself and Almighty God, he refused this magnificent pardon. And folks, I think there's something eminently biblical in that for you and me. See, the Bible says something very similar. Over and over again, the Scriptures make it clear that God has forgiven you, that a pardon has been granted. And some of you know, because I've been teaching on this last few weeks, that I believe that's a universal pardon, that God extends this pardon to all of humanity. He offers it to all of humanity. That when Christ died, He offers the same concealment, the same distance, the same calculation to every human being when it comes to His forgiveness. It's that powerful and it's that personal and we all need it. That's what these word pictures out of Romans 4 are all about. But the Bible also says very, very clearly that the pardon offered must be accepted. It must be received into one's life. Or, like George Wilson, it's completely forfeited. In the Gospel of John, in verse 12, it says, but to, in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, but to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how does one enter into a right relationship, an eternal relationship with God? You have to receive the pardon. And the Bible also says that you have to receive it once for salvation, the very first time. And then I believe for Christians after that, you need to wake up every day and receive it over and over again. Not to be saved again. But again, I think that our church today is going to be filled with lots of well-meaning people who might be able to argue that they're saved. They might be able to argue that they've come to believe and accept this pardon, but you still don't know how much he's forgiven you. You still live an immense amount of guilt, and that guilt holds you back. And the first step to repentance, I teased you about repentance earlier, is to receive his forgiveness. Because until your soul is free, until your soul is clean before him, you'll never change. Until, as we're going to talk in a couple weeks, until you have the peace of God in you, you'll never feel free to become the man or woman he wants you to be. And so he offers you his forgiveness here today, the first, for first for salvation, to come and receive him. But then also, every day, now as a follower of Jesus, to wake up and thank him. This is Thanksgiving weekend for the forgiveness that he has secured for you, that frees you up to know him and walk with him. That's my hope for you as your pastor and as your friend, that you can walk in freedom and in truth in the light of his forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the scriptures that shed such incredible light on this world of darkness, even our spiritual lives in which sometimes we don't see things very clearly. And Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit loves to take and use the scriptures that you have preserved for us and enlighten and alive in our hearts and our minds so that we might understand the riches that we have in Christ. And so Father, I pray today, I know there has to be some here, if not many, that could give wonderful lip service to the fact that you've forgiven us, but they're not feeling it very deeply. They're not really living in light of it. 
They're living guilt-ridden, shame-ridden, beaten down lives in their souls. And Lord, that can't be your will for us. So God, I pray that we might once again receive today the forgiveness that you've reserved for us in Christ. May, as Ephesians 1 says, the eyes of our heart be enlightened today so we might know the hope to which we have been called. And Lord, if there are some here today that need to receive your forgiveness for the very first time, they've just never seen it this way. They've never come to you for salvation. I pray that right where they sit, they would believe and trust in you, realizing that their sin does distance them from you, but you now want to take that sin and distance that sin and bring them close to you. And so, Lord, by believing and trusting in Jesus right where they sit, they receive your forgiveness for the very first time today. May this be the day of their salvation. Lord, for the rest of us, many of us who have trusted in Christ over the years, I pray, God, that today would be another defining moment of resolve for us to not be beaten down by shame and guilt in our lives, but to live in the newness and freshness of what life in Christ is about by receiving something we could never do for ourselves, and that is the forgiveness and grace you've given us. Release us today. Free us, I pray, that we might know you, follow you, love others, and live in your freedom and truth. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.